0: Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. And this is episode 148. So
1: the podcast got mentioned in an article. The article's title was 12 Great Podcasts for Engineers. And it was written from a blog called Mind Tribe. Um, They did not pay us to say this, but Mind Tribe is a design-driven engineering firm based in San Francisco. I ripped that right off their website. Sweet. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> our team just a little bit here
1: yeah a little bit uh the list spawns from a survey from the engineering team at mind tribe um and so we got listed with all the greats Woo! of of the engineering podcasts and so it's one of those we made it moments yeah, we're
0: finally there i don't know what there is but we're there we're there
1: um and my favorite is the the i i have the uh the review here and is uh it's This is a technical podcast by Texas-based PCB, Fab, and Assembly House, where the two hosts, Parker and Steven, have conversations about electrical engineering. Parker and Steven provide a unique perspective on hardware and show and the show is both entertaining and educational. Unique
0: perspective, huh? Yeah, it's the word unique perspective. Yeah. Like they just have to kind of like, well, it's it's unique, you know? (laughs) And the thing is, most of our reviews are like that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They they don't they don't start off with like this is educational or this is you're going to learn something or this is going to be really good for you. They could be like, well, I mean, yeah, they they're unique. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's we're different. We're different. Yeah, yeah. We're,
1: we're different. MacFab Engineering Podcast, the other engineering podcast.
0: <laughs> That's really sad, actually. <laughs> That's really sad. Yeah. MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're not the Amp Hour. Oh. Shots not fired. What? Well, no, Shots
1: sinking the boat.
0: No, I love you guys,
1: Chris Campbell, If you're listening out there, we love you. Yeah, we, we we love you, Chris. Okay, so I've been working on the Raspberry Pi three compute module board. It is almost ready to go. Build more fiberglass or FR four. And I added the PCM five one two two, which is that. uh, that I, uh, with I2S DAC that I was talking about like six months ago. It's finally on the board, all routed up, ready to go. I've added the LAN 9514, which is the USB hub and Ethernet controller that is on the actual Raspberry Pis themselves. Now, the compute module doesn't have built-in USB hub or a built-in Ethernet controller, and so this is the chip they use, so I basically... Stole the design from them and put it on my board. Um, So that should be kind of working. I got most of the schematic figured out. There's a couple more little things I need to do. Like I need to find the right crystal to make this part, you know, work correctly. Um, I've been working more with EFM8 microcontrollers. I got their Universal B uh, dev board. (laughs) Um, and it's, it's similar to older other dev boards it's got a screen on it and a bunch of other does it come with space invaders it has space invaders preloaded on it
0: oh yeah <laughs> I, I thought that was so cool when gosh it was like right at the beginning of uh, it was when like I, three yeah, years I, ago yeah yeah we 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 both got a what a sleepy bee sleepy bees yeah no it was a standard bee <laughs> the bee it was the honey bee uh, the- <laughs> <laughs> and i remember like we both turned them on and we found out that it had space invaders and we both yelled and like the whole shop was like what the hell just happened we're like space invaders game preloaded on a dead board <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> whosever idea was that at silicon labs uh
0: kudos yeah high five on that and 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 they have the source code for it too which yes
1: well, the first thing you did was just make just sped it up by like a billion x. and so basically you turned it on and it said game over because they just landed
0: immediately. <laughs> I was just trying to j- jack around with the firmware and be like, what does this variable do? Oh <laughs> And uh, so I, I've been working with the universal
1: bee, which is different um, than like the sleepy bee or or honeybee. It's not called the honeybee, but whatever. Um, Silicon Labs, if you want to use that for your normal bee line, You can have it royalty free. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It has USB built into the chip, like it has the own USB uh, stack and all the hardware needed, like the differential pair stuff built in. That's awesome. Um, And I was playing around with some of their their example code. Like you can do a native com port over it. Now it's not like the normal. ComPort driver that like windows and linux normally use it's it's a vcp driver which i don't know exactly yeah virtual comport i think it's what it stands for but it's like a different driver it doesn't come native in most operating systems you're right but it does work and it works
0: really well well windows will detect it and it has to install the driver for it yeah yeah that's a the um not the FTDI, but all those like extra like Comport cables that you can buy, you know, like the crappy ones you can get at Fry's and stuff. Mm-hmm. They all show up as a VCP. Okay. So this one, though, I had to like
1: install the Silicon Lab specific driver ah. to get to work. Um, and I've been connecting that up to – basically because I wanted just – I wanted the units B be just so I can start playing around with with that Comport stuff over USB mainly because the next kind of secret project I'm working on um, it needs like less stuff on the board. Like I have to minimize how much because like my board is only like one inch by one inch. What's a little bit bigger than that, but it's about that size. And so I need to like minimize what parts on it. So I can't have like a serial UART bridge because it just takes up too much space. So I went with this native USB uh, microcontroller and it's still like only like 25 cents in quantity. Yeah, <laughs> it's like how how do you get a like an FT two thirty X is like minimal like a buck fifty,
0: <laughs> right? Right. And, but, or you could just have the microcontroller with the the stack inside.
1: Yeah, stack inside, and I, I mean, of course, it takes up some space or whatever. But it's like th- this thing I'm working on doesn't use that much program space and or that much RAM or ROM or anything. So it's like. I can really condense it down to what it needs to do
0: okay i am I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a little bit of a uh, well, okay, so I know a little bit about your secret project, which will I guess you'll announce in a second but but just a quick question that's purely for me, not the listeners. Are you doing everything in an algorithm because I would have expected that you would have had to use some more memory oh okay the oh, the, the listeners can listen to this part. Okay.
1: Um so so the other part of this is it's using the ST7735 screen module thing which is a common SPI TFT screen. Um, the one I'm using is like a 1.44 inch which is 128 by 128 pixels. And so what Stevens asking is how am I basically displaying 128 by 128 pixels in like not a lot of space? Yeah, exactly that's what I'm going at. Yeah. Yeah. So the images that it's displaying, there's not a lot of pixel depth. Like there's only like I think there's only like eleven or twelve different colors total. Uh, and so it's using a lookup table to on the fly. So when the serial is actually spinning it out, it's actually looking it up and spinning it.
0: Up. Oh, so it's just ripping through an array, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So it goes, okay, um, since I only need 12 colors, it's only what is that, only three is it three bits or four bits four bits it's only four bits per pixel instead of two to the or was it eight bits something like that anyways it's using a lookup table to do it and then um it has a base map and then everything changes based off that because there's only like 14 or 15 different different images that's going to display and it just uses a change now it's about sixty to seventy percent of the pixels change, so that might not be worth implementing. Like a uh, that's kind of like a keyframe way of doing it. That mm-hmm. might not be the best way to do it. Um, I'm still playing with it, but it's a lot less pixels than you would think is needed.
0: Yeah, well, the screen is small, uh, and yeah. there's not a lot of color depth. Yeah,
1: yeah, there's not a lot of color depth because when you think about it, sure, you need like the full eight bits that the screen does to, like, represent the colors correctly. But you don't need all eight of those bits.
0: You only need, like, three. <laughs> I got it. I, I, I didn't... I just didn't know if you were... if you had come up with, like, a really fancy algorithm to calculate what the screen was supposed to do at any one point in time. No, no. That would be cool. Yeah, it would be, but... I guess... Oh, you could, like, make it an equation. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Make an equation that, like... You know, it's a. It's basically you have two inputs, you have your x and your y on the screen, and it spits out color. You know what? I'm gonna try that. <laughs> then I you want to store anything in memory? You just store the equation.
1: Yeah, because actually, what you can do is you can store the equation for each frame. Uh huh. And then that only has to go to 12, 12 different colors. And then you, you, so you do that to calculate what color it needs to go to, and then that goes to the lookup table, and that spits out the eight bits. I want, I want to see if that's possible. See if I can make a, a it'd be an Excel, <laughs> to the yeah. best fit line. <laughs>
0: you know, I guess what you could do is just consider the, um, consider the screen to be one continuous line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then just write the equation for like that huge whatever line that is. What is a hundred something times however many. Is in mm-hmm. the Y direction, yeah. And yeah. then one equation. Well, no, it's that. one. The screen's one twenty-eight by one
1: twenty-eight, but one plane is like thirty by thirty.
0: Oh, that's right. You don't even need the whole real estate.
1: No, so you don't. So what it does is it does one. Well, what my driver does is does nearest neighbor, and so it goes. Okay, it's going to be this color for the next eight pixels, mm-hmm. and just clones that over. So that's also how you get lower amount of uh, RAM and ROM usage. Right, that makes
0: sense. Yeah, yeah, but it would be pretty cool to have none of your images actually stored. That, yeah, I want to try that because I, I, that might work. I don't see why not. that'd be
1: pretty crazy if it does work. <laughs> if, if you can calculate it in real time, that's the biggest thing. Well, real time enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Yeah, this is a secret project. I'm not gonna say exactly what it is, but it may doom everything.
0: Ooh, and doom is capitalized all the letters. Well, in the notes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hint, hint.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, that's gonna be that's gonna be a fun project because it was kind of like one of those like Steven and I came up with it. Uh, what two weeks ago, or a week ago, or something like that. And I'm like stop all the presses on all my personal projects working
0: on this now <laughs> <laughs> yeah we both started go- like immediately just hammering google with like okay we got to we got to research this can we do it yeah
1: <laughs> um and then i have a wagon update but this is not going to be a typical wagon update um cuz trying not to do too much car stuff on the electronics engineering podcast right (laughs) welding welding is electronic right anger electronics (laughs) angered pixies right yeah angry pixies as ape would say um so i've been putting up uh youtube videos on my youtube channel of my updates um so go check those out if you want to stay up to date on the wagon because i mean i put bolt in hole a
0: doesn't make it for a very good podcast (laughs) well i I mean and and go post it on the slack channel and anyone who wants to go see jeep videos uh, there you go check that out yep cool yeah so Stephen your updates <clears throat> so I um let's see here for a lack of better terms I feature creeped my way into some new designs and I put feature creep in in quotes mainly because this is something that I've had. Kind of in my backlog of to dos for a long Mm -hmm. time. I just pulled it out of the bag and was like, okay, now it's time to do it. It's not like a new idea. It's just finally like, okay, we're going to do it now. It's been on that like notepad, like stored away forever. Yeah, that notepad that's like inside your skull, way in the very back, you know? Uh, I've wanted to design a graphic equalizer for a long time a very long time, and I just never really got around to it, mainly because I didn't have a need for one. But uh, in, a, in a previous podcast, I, I was discussing that um, I was getting into a lot more into Fusion 360, and I was designing an amp from scratch in a 3D space. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I kind of ran into is with the electrical design, I was only using half of the chassis in terms of where my knob went. <laughs> But, but the rest of the guts were actually still taking up, uh, you know, the the remainder of the chassis. So it's not like I could cut my chassis in half. But I was looking at it one day and realized that there was just enough room on the other half of the chassis that if I just filled it with a twenty band graphic equalizer, it would fill the whole front panel and look gorgeous. So I was like, okay, well, obviously I have to go design an equalizer to make it fit. Yeah. <laughs> so so I I I spent wow, quite a while now and i and and got an equalizer kind of thrown together and this is uh, this is not feature creep this is a a solution looking for a problem yeah, that's a good way of putting it i like that yeah. <laughs> it was just blank real estate and I had to fill it with something minus as will be electronics right um or might as well actually be something useful so the the thing is i'm I'm trying to use this equalizer inside of a tube amplifier um well, so it's going to go at the junction in between the preamp and the power amp, because that's a, that's a pretty decent spot for you to actually shape the frequencies before they get, you know.
1: Is there is there a reason why you don't want to do that before the preamp?
0: Well, it all depends on what you're going for. In fact, you know, I think there's a pretty good argument that it would be good to have both. But um, I, in between, you sort of get to shape the frequencies of the harmonics that are generated in your preamp as opposed to shape the 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 frequencies that go into your preamp. So if you have an EQ before the preamp, then you can somewhat adjust, not somewhat, you have a pretty powerful connection with the harmonics that you'll generate. So you can control the clipping. You know, if you scoop out 500 Hertz, there's a lot less chance that you're going to distort 500 Hertz and distort not as in like heavy distortion, because every preamp is going to distort. So being able to fine tune all of those things and, and actually a good, uh, decent example of all of this is uh, the one, the main guitar that I play on has an awful, awful peak at about 210 hertz it just resonates like crazy at 210 hertz and i don't like that it sounds terrible in my opinion so i a lot of times i'll put a a notch in that area and it cleans everything up and all the other frequencies are allowed to just come on through and so this eq is going to allow me to kind of like shape that a little bit i may also do some other things to adjust that but regardless um It it makes the most sense in my design to go in between the preamp and the power amp. The problem is the output of my preamp is tube level. So it's upwards of 200 volt peak to peak swing. Uh, There's no solid state device that's going to be able to handle 200 volt peak to peak. But my power amp is expecting a huge signal like that too. So I had to kind of finagle a solid state solution that would drop that. So I had to do a 50 to one division effectively. So 200 volts would be a maximum of four volts, which I've got plenty of headroom to handle four volts. And then at the end of it, I had to you know, basically do a, a, a recovery gain stage that brings four volts back up to something in the, I don't know, big range It's it's not super critical (laughs) what it is for what I'm going for. So uh, I mean I I, don't get me wrong. I calculated my gains, but uh, it's not. It's it all is it's it's so dependent upon where the user puts the knobs that it's not. I'm not super worried about being like there's exactly three point five six times gain here. You know, like in my opinion, my design has enough gain. Enough gain. That's where I'm at with that. (laughs) <laughs> but, to, but inside the equalizer, I was a little bit more anal about getting everything right. Because if you're trying to do a graphic equalizer and you have your bands stepping over each other, then it's not a good equalizer. It doesn't really yeah, yeah, work. Yeah. So um, I used a multiple, multiple feedback band pass op amp configuration to establish the, the gains of each one of my bands. And since I'm doing a 20 band equalizer that's using a one kilohertz standard, um, each, so that
1: means that each band is one kilohertz wide.
0: No, no. Uh, well, big, each each band is going to be, you know, bands in the lower frequency range are going to be smaller in terms of their frequency span, and bands higher up in the frequency span are going to be wider. Okay. The thing is, they all have the same Q, and the Q is the quality factor of a of a filter. And uh, if you remember back in, I guess. I guess that was college. That's the first time I really started playing around with with Q. Q basically determines how, I guess you could say, sharp or how high the peak of a filter is. It's a lot more than that, but effectively, talking about
1: like what, what's what's the term? Uh, attack.
0: Yeah, sort of. Yeah. Well, I, I guess if you're talking about a, if you talk, okay, let's. I guess we'll define it here. Uh, if we're talking about a bandpass filter, and you you look at the center frequency, let's say the center frequency is at. A 1,000 hertz. Uh, if you look to higher frequencies and lower frequencies, look at where the negative 3 dB point is, mm-hmm. take the difference of those two frequencies and see how wide that is. You can calculate the, I mean, that, that is, that's your bandwidth is what they basically call it. And then you, one divided by that, you can get the Q. Oh, uh, okay. So when it comes down to designing a uh, graphic equalizer, you want every band to have the same Q. But it won't have the same bandwidth. It'll it'll be you know some will be wider. You, you, you're the 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 bandwidth of a of a band out at fifteen hundred hertz is going to be a lot bigger than the one that's at sixty hertz because sixty hertz only has to go from something like forty two up to hundred and something. I don't remember the exact numbers, but regardless, so I'm using a one kilohertz standard and um, on a, on a ten band EQ, each band is one octave. So one octave would be half of a you know, a kilohertz would be, I guess you'd be at 500 hertz would be the low end and then 1500 on the top end. But since I'm doing a 20 band EQ, there's one more band in between there. So I'd have one band at 1k, one band at 750, one band at 500, one at 375, 250, blah, blah, blah. You can follow that all the way down. And I, I was really shooting for what's called a constant Q uh, filter, which they're sort of hard to design around, and a constant Q filter is based off of however you have it set. The Q will always be the same. So what it really boils down to is that each band doesn't affect other bands. It's more isolated into its own little bucket. And I sort of got a constant Q design going, and sort of as in like it's not perfect, but it's pretty close. It's enough. It's enough. Yeah, exactly. It's like my gain. It's enough. <laughs> uh, well, and and the thing is, like, I'm not doing like studio mastering or anything like that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And uh, and the actual like relative position of the of the knob, even though it's linear, and I could probably determine exactly where like specific gains are on that knob, it doesn't matter in guitar world. Like, you just turn it and be like, do I like this? Yes or no.
1: Well, um, and also like potentiometers are like plus minus twenty percent. It's yeah, exactly. like, <laughs> you're never going to get perfect from like, you know, unit A to unit B is not going to be the same.
0: Oh, for sure. And and the thing is I'm using all slide pots because it's a graphic equalizer that all have a center detent. And the slide pots with a center detent are notorious for not being center at the center. Uh, so even even if you have this thing all zeroed out and the front panel shows zero across the board, I I bet you, you know, there's, I haven't measured it, but there's once I build it, maybe I will. I bet you there's half a DB of difference across each band from, even if it's everything's dead center. So, but, but each band I, I designed to have a plus minus 12 DB range. So it's pretty powerful. I mean, it will, that's pretty standard, but, but that's, that's really powerful when it comes to guitar, guitar world. Um, you can really crush or add a bunch of, uh, gain with stuff. But, um, you know, so one of the things that that's interesting is with graphic equalizers, getting the right taper on a potentiometer is really tough. Uh, so, like a linear slide potentiometer, you would think that that would work pretty well for getting. You know, as you go up, you get more gain. As you go down, you get less gain. Get less gain. It. Uh, but, but, most of these designs end up being a, a a complex feedback design that doesn't work linearly. So, as you go up, you'll you don't get a lot of change. and then the very the last ten percent of the slide on a slide pot does like eight, All of it. yeah. so it's like three d b for for ninety percent of the travel and then eight more for the last little bit. so it, it, what it what it really ends up being is like these on off switches so. There's The solution to that is to get a different taper on a pot, and they call it a W taper. So you know how there's like linear and logarithmic and reverse logarithmic and that kind of thing. There's a special taper for slide pots. That's a W taper, which is log and anti-log. Log in one direction, anti-log in the other direction. It's going from the center. And basically, okay. these slide pots are meant only for graphic equalizers. So those are the only places you <laughs> really uh, and they're super hard to find, and I didn't want to design around that. So I actually came up with a different solution on that, where I used um, twenty-one sixty-four VCA's to act as a uh, voltage-controlled potentiometer, and so I can use a regular slide potentiometer, linear slide potentiometer, to control a voltage-controlled potentiometer, and then that and that
1: goes to be logarithmic and anti-logarithmic.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I and I also kind of made it where if you if you're in the center of your slide pot, then both of the VCAs are at 0, so you you basically you you're passing unity gain. If you if you move the slide pot up, then it only activates one of the VCAs and that VCA is working. So for boosting, the boost VCA is working. And then if you slide the slide pot down from center, only the cut VCA is working. So they don't work all the time. Mm -hmm. In in a traditional equalizer, uh, where it just relies on on an analog potentiometer, you're always sharing both sides of the pot, unless you're at the maximum or the minimum. But in my design, it depends on where the potentiometer slide is. And that actually ends up working really well for for what I'm doing, and I've got a lot more control over it. So I did a lot of work and probably spent way more money than just going out and getting W taper pots, even if I had to have them custom made, because I made all this like sub circuitry just to get around a taper. On a <laughs> it works out really well, or at least the simulations show that it works out really well. So <laughs> hopefully, I'll be building that sometime soon.
1: You, you should add a. So I like the, the twenty band idea, but then have a a not a a, no, a slider notch. Slider notch. What do you mean? So have a potentiometer. That will that will shift the frequency from like let's say like one hertz all the way up to twenty kilohertz, right? And then a a lever to go up and down to do your dB boost or gain. Yeah. Or or or, so it's a sliding notch that you could have also on top of this this band. Twenty. Okay. Yeah. Well. Okay. So you can can pick like I want I want one hundred and sixty two hertz because that's what my guitar resonates at and it sounds bad. So I want to basically put that to zero and slide that around until I hit that. And then you can play around with the other stuff.
0: Well, okay. So check this out. This is pretty cool. Uh, so the, I, I mentioned that the core of each one of my bands is a multiple feedback, uh, multiple feedback bandpass configuration op Go, go look that up. There's a Wikipedia page on it and all the equations and stuff like that are on there. So the cool thing about this type of, of layout or this type of uh, design with this EQ is you can change what the core of the EQ is and it just responds to whatever the core you choose is. So if you just put a high pass filter there, then now you have a controllable high pass filter. If you put a anything, it will just control that. So instead of a multiple feedback bandpass configuration, you could put a state variable filter, which takes three op amps, but what it gives you is control over the individual cue of each mm-hmm. uh, band, it'll also give you the uh, bandwidth of each uh, uh, band, and it'll give you uh, what is it? The frequency. So, you, so exactly what you're talking about could still be done in the analog realm. It's just when you think about it, that adds three more potentiometers to each band. No, no, I was saying is
1: you just have one of these on your your. Oh so you're just saying like add an extra
0: notch somewhere in there.
1: Yeah, so it's like you have this 20 band that's like set like it's it's a normal equalizer set up yeah. but then you have a notch that you can slide around if you need it.
0: Oh okay, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean exactly what I just said, um, yeah. you put one state variable filter in it with a with a cut boost and a sliding filter on there and then you then you'd have exactly what you're talking about there. So, that's not a bad idea. Maybe I'll do that. Actually, at the end of the 20-band EQ, I, I put a makeup gain on it where I basically I have one extra slider where if it's in the center, then it's unity gain. If it's down, it's zero. And then if it goes up, it gives you a gain of two. So uh, I wanted to have basically a master control that if you leave it in the center, it's not there. But if you need just one more fine-tune on the global volume of everything, you can do can it. And me go to 12. <laughs> yeah if okay, that one has six db of gain i apologize oh 16 db <laughs> no six just six, oh, six. okay yeah. so <laughs> uh so basically i have that whole thing uh the schematic all created for that and it's ridiculous i can't remember it has something like 400 components on the board like i just went overboard on everything i like it was like i i'm not designing this for mass production right now you know like I'm just doing it for my one off amp, so I'm just gonna make like a super eQ <laughs> you know just for fun. so uh, I hope to hope to build that and I have to lay it out, and that's the part that's I love layout, but this one's gonna be twenty step and repeats over and over and and diptrace doesn't do step and repeat as good as Eagle does. So I basically have to do the same thing twenty times for every component, you know <laughs> so, kind of fun.
1: You could do, um, yeah. You know, you just auto route it, man. Ah, heathen. <laughs> I, I think I'm starting to smoke, catch on fire right now.
0: Yeah, yes. <laughs> The Ground is opening up. You're gonna fall in. <laughs> so that's what I've been doing. So I'm hoping to see
1: um, when you get that whole board done.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm pretty excited about it actually. So one quick little update. One thing I'm thinking about doing is ripping out the core, that multiple feedback core, on each... We have to end. go through the core. Well, So what I'm thinking about doing is having a header where that core... Basically, you have input, output, ground, and power. Uh, and I was thinking about making separate boards that you could plug in. So if you wanted to do a state variable core, you just plug that core in. Or if you want to do a multiple feedback... And I don't... That's more just for fun and more to, to like try out different things, because if I just build in the multiple feedback feedback thing, like that's all I get. I, you know that's it. So I don't cool. know. If, if
1: if you do it that way though, you only have to draw that one board once and just get twenty copies of it, instead of instead of redoing it all the time. So now you just have to put
0: headers on the main board. Exactly. Yeah, and that was it. Also makes the um, I'm space constrained. Even though, like the whole point of making this EQ was to use up the space, I have too much circuitry for the space now, so I have to get creative on how I'm actually doing it. You know, and that brings up another thing. Uh, So I came up with a with a really interesting footprint that I'm going to be trying out on um, this board. So I have some really, really, really nice uh, coax cable that I I inherited from a previous life, and uh, this this coax cable. I want to solder the coax cable directly to my PCB and the footprint that I've created has different pads on top and bottom of the board, which frankly dip trace doesn't handle differing pads on top and bottom very well. Eagle does that pretty good, right? Uh,
1: you'd have to make two SMT pads and then plunge a hole in it.
0: Okay. That's, that's not, that great either no no it's not that's how you would do it basically with dip trace the best way that i can find to do it is to make a hole with a small annular ring and then draw the rest of your pad how you want it to be on top and bottom i guess Uh,
1: i guess that would work in eagle too
0: yeah see uh, the thing is what okay so here's what i'm wanting to do i i have a hole going through the board and on the side that my coax enters the board I want to have the hole, the annular ring, and then basically a space, and then a separate pad that the coax solders to. So the coax will solder flat against the PCB, and the center conductor will go into a hole inside the PCB. So basically what I have is a pad that is inside of a pad that they're not connected. Mm-hmm out there so it's confusing but i've I designed something up and diptace is, is throwing all kinds of drc errors at me but whatever i i think it's I think like i know this will work don't challenge me <laughs> you know that's a, that's another great by no, it's like dip- you draw
1: it and you're like i knew you would say that drc tool oh gosh yeah
0: exactly would <laughs>
1: I'll judge dread in here
0: dip-trace, dip-trace doesn't have a really good option for for letting you say like no it's okay i know what i'm doing in this situation like yeah. dip will always be like hey dude this is bad
1: yeah eagle hasn't a has a approve button yeah it, you just like basically
0: ignore it <laughs> I, you know i always like that about eagle because when i was doing um dfm reviews in eagle there was a lot of times that it was throwing crap where i was just like no like this one legitimately i understand and mm-hmm. it's okay it's kind of like when you're um when your smoke alarm goes off in the kitchen when you're cooking oh, yes it yes. would be nice to just have like an automatic be like nope it's okay don't worry about it i got this like that's just some smoke you
1: know yeah it's i open up
0: the oven it's fine yeah yeah yeah
1: <laughs> okay cool stuff On yeah. to the RFO. rfo which some people don't know what the rfo means that's true It's the Rapid Fire Opinion, which when we first started this podcast a hundred and whatever episodes ago, it actually meant rapid.
0: (laughs) And and we originally intended it to be where uh, we would just say something and then at the end of it, both Parker and I would be like, thumbs up or thumbs down. You know, like it was supposed to be something like
1: that. And well, we originally started this podcast and each podcast was like sub 30 minutes. And we're already at like the 35-minute mark Yep, <laughs> this
0: podcast.
1: <laughs> Which, frankly, I think ended up working better. The slightly longer form tends to be better.
0: Yeah. Well, it allows us a chance to uh, release our unique perspectives on hardware,
1: right? <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> okay, so the first uh, the first item on our RFO this week is... STM releasing STM32 Cube MX version 5.0, and for those who don't know, that's uh, STM's configuration software for their STM32 line of microcontrollers. And so, just a few days ago, I believe it was November 21st, they released their uh, 5.0 version. Which, you know, if if you're regular a regular user of STM32 That might be old news for you, but uh, it's pretty cool. I saw some videos on it, and it looks like they really cleaned up a lot of stuff. Um, So, so over the summer, I started getting into STM32 configuration, and and pretty ballsy.
1: That right before like Thanksgiving.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, because that's what no one's in the office (laughs) table, (laughs) right? Yeah. So, so this uh, this configurator, I I always thought that it was it was pretty good for the for the STM32. It was just slightly clunky. Some of the stuff wasn't really straightforward in terms of where you go and what you have to do in terms of uh, configuration. But it looks like they cleaned up the UI and they made things sort of like a left-to-right path where you just start off, you define your pins, then you walk to uh, your clock, and then you walk to power, and you blah, blah, blah. You go down the line, and at the end of it, it just dumps out to your IDE the full configuration file. Uh, and and they made it like the graphics look a little bit nicer this time around, so it's a pretty cool look. Cool. I got to check it out. So actually uh, just a quick question for you on that because this actually brought up um, an uh, an idea when I was looking at it earlier today is I'm curious what your path is when you're you so you've already selected a microcontroller for your project. You already know what you're gonna do. Not always. Well, but but no, like just go with me on this. Just that okay. you already have selected that. Okay. What do you do first? Do you define your pins? Do you define your clock? Do you f- figure out your communication? Like, what is your method? So let's say with the EFM8. Yeah.
1: Okay. So what I usually do with the EFM8 is, I actually this is actually a good thing. Is this is my entire like embedded software. Process from a high level.
0: Oh, Everyone, uh, uh, please give us five ninety nine right now. Get <laughs> <if, if, if. laughs> your pencil and paper bucks. out and prepare to write this down. Yeah, there we go. Um,
1: so what I do is uh, I get the, all the hardware, like uh, hardware, um, like the uh, sensors, all that stuff. Get those designed. Get that ready to go. Figure out what kind of protocols i need to talk to them like do i need i 2 c do i need spy do i need uh dma and some some cases um get all that good to go and so basically once i figure that out i can go shop for a microcontroller okay okay and i always pick like the beefiest microcontroller first from the line right so i'm like uh-huh. okay this one has enough io to run all my buttons and all my sensors and all that stuff basically this one guaranteed will do it yeah, and then I'm going to pick the one with the largest amount of RAM and the largest amount of ROM. Build that and get that board manufactured. And while that board is being made, I start writing the code. Get the code written. Get, get basically like making sure basically when the board shows up, I can put that code on and make sure my hardware works. All right. So it basically just like talks to like all the I2C devices, make sure the spy is working right, all that stuff. Generally, it doesn't work the first time. <laughs> green wire all that good stuff yeah. basically you get a working board all the hardware's working you got that good then you start filling out your code getting all the functionality working all that stuff and then optimize 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 your code and then shrink your ROM and RAM on your, your microcontroller until like it's like the minimal it can be i.e. it's like the cheapest microcontroller of that line got it um, that's my approach so basically like I guess in terms of like specking out like when you're in the IDE is I usually do like IO first because yep. I need spy. I need I 2 C. I need maybe I need TXRX serial or USB inspect that stuff out first and then do IO. And once I get that, I actually go back to my schematic and then make sure that lines up in my schematic because sometimes you have to change some, you know, IO lines around and then go look at your board and make sure you can route that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And sometimes you're like, Oh, I can't route that or it's going to be, you know, via hell. And so then you go back to your IDE and go, okay, can I, which ones of these can I swap around to make it better and basically work back and forth that way until I got something that looks nice and a fan out on the microcontroller. Um, I think this is why I think a lot of embedded designers need to know more about, like, the IDE world. Maybe not, like, programming, but at least, like, knowing what chip functionalities can be, you know, put onto a pin. Oh, absolutely. You have to. You have to. Um, You can't just assume, you know... Well, like sometimes you like you'll have like a pin and it's like in your schematic and it's labeled what functions it can be. But sometimes that's not the whole story. Sometimes that function can only be used there if that port is set up that right way. And so you have to go through that process sometimes
0: first. Even even that only works if another port is set up a certain way. Yeah, sometimes
1: that's the case. Um EFM8 seem to be a lot more generous in this because they have that crossbar and a lot more like more modern microcontrollers are starting to have this like a pin can be anything kind of thing. Yeah. Which is really nice. But you know, it's always good to go back, do the back and forth, you know, juggle between IDE and your schematic until everything looks good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's my process there is I pick pick the pins and that kind of stuff. And usually clock lines have to be clock lines. There's not really any way to get around that. Even sure. in like these microcontrollers with crossbars, generally they have like these pins are used for clocks because they have probably special routing inside the chip.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Cool. So. There's there's the secrets into Parker's That's the secret world. sauce. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anyone learned anything but there you go. <laughs> cool. So, yeah, go check out the stm 32 Cube MX version 5.0 or at least go watch a video of it, you know. I'm sure our listeners will actually know what's going on. I know a lot of like old school engineers don't like these hardware configurators.
1: They save so much time learning platforms. Yeah, I like them a lot. I, I really like the, the hardware configurator in EFM8. Um, it just makes learning the hardware, like you don't have to go hunt for that one stupid register that you have to set to make sure that pin doesn't use it as a comparator and so you can use it
0: as a GPIO. Pick 16. <laughs> you also don't have to read like thousand page data sheets, you know. Well, I mean... Uh, you don't have to read them as intently, let's put Yeah,
1: it you only have to read 384 pages of that <laughs> one thousand page data sheet. <laughs> it does help out a lot. Now that's not the end all because I have run into issues where like some modules will like conflict and
0: stuff like that, but well, I'm sure it's hard for them to keep track of everything too. Yeah. <laughs> you think they made it, they know everything about it, right? Jeez, there's a lot of information in there. A lot. Yeah. Oh yeah.
1: Well, you got to think is it wasn't one person who did that entire data sheet or one person designing the whole
0: thing. So, good god, I hope not. <laughs> I feel sorry for that guy. <laughs> so, cool. So the next
1: RFO is I'm looking for a CNC router and so I've been looking at options online to pick one up. Um, so this is kind of like a general question to our listeners. Is like what kind of if you have a CNC machine or have a suggestion for a CNC machine, let me know. Um, My specifications is like a two foot by four foot CNC router. It's basically me cutting plywood and um, sometimes aluminum, but mostly just plywood and plastics. I've been looking at the uh, what is this? The uh, CNC router parts CRP 4824 router kit because that kit's about two and a half grand and then you have to add electronics and all that other stuff to it but it seems to be a pretty rigid structure for the cost and it basically does everything i need it to do um and then i was going to build a vacuum table for it and we were talking about this before the podcast but like you can like the cnc machine can build its own vacuum table by just punching little tiny holes all over the the, uh sack face board spill board yeah um and i have like a two horsepower vacuum pump. I think it actually is bigger than that. I think it's a four horsepower vacuum pump left over from a, uh, a uh, stencil machine. You rescued it. Yeah. rescued it before it went to the garbage.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've, I've seen, uh, I was telling Parker, I've seen a handful of um, PVC designs that uh, actually work really well for vacuum tables. (laughs) In fact, I saw one that was really cool. It was, um, it was on a four by eight CNC where he had it set up into quadrants Wow. So you only have to turn out certain parts. Yeah, and he had a, he had each one valved, so if he knew he was only going to use one quadrant, no need to you know pull a vacuum on the entire table. So he just set it for whatever he needed, which was I thought that was a really great idea.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, and we also had the idea of, hey, we should bring a guest on to the co- podcast about maybe some DIY CNC stuff, but instead of just like. You know, buying X parts and then cobbling it together, but like going into like the science and engineering of actually building a DIY CNC, like picking out lead screws, like motor specifications, like stepper versus servos. Um, how do you control those stuff like that?
0: Yeah, and, and even, even some ideas on, like, here's what's new to the industry. Maybe not so, like, salesy, but, like, on the controllers, you know, maybe there's something that's some magical widget out there that's really great for it. So mm-hmm. if uh, if anyone knows anyone who is, you know, really well-versed in uh, CNC design for uh, probably more on the DIY side of things, we'd love to have a guest on. Uh, I think that would actually be a really fun topic. Mm-hmm. So let us know in our Slack channel
1: or... Email us at podcast at MacFab.com. How do they get to the Slack channel, Parker? Uh, go to our podcast notes, and there's a button there that says Slack. How do they get to our podcast notes, Parker? <laughs> uh, MacFab.com slash blog slash podcast. <laughs> I actually think .com slash podcast works as well.
0: Yeah, I think it does. So yeah, yeah um, I, that, would be, that would be great to know. I'm actually looking to rebuild my CNC in the future also. And so uh, I want to get away from a chain-driven design and go to a lead screw design. So I have done some research. What happened to the rack and pinion, man? Uh, well, the rack and pinion, rack and pinion would be great. However, uh, you know, so uh, on that topic, I did a, a handful of torque calculations, torque versus speed, because that's from everything that I've learned with CNC, like torque versus speed is, it's a compromise in both directions, right? So mm. rack and pinion is great, but you kind of have to spec your motors right for ret- Not Kind of, you absolutely have to spec your motors right <laughs> for that kind of thing. And when it comes down to it, lead screws work really, really well and you get pretty dang good accuracy. So I, I think you have
1: less backlash.
0: Uh, Yeah. It all depends on what you buy. And well, actually, you know, it all depends on how much money you throw at the problem, right? You're like, <laughs> yeah. you can get, you can get basically no backlash if you, if you, throw a bunch of money at it but but okay so you got speed you got torque you got backlash but you also have transmission you know do you want to couple your rack and pinion through a transmission well what if you do a lead screw with a half an inch pitch on it is that enough uh torque probably but how fast do you have to turn that thing to get the acceleration that you want and you know all of these kinds of things that would be Fun to talk about. I have an Excel spreadsheet somewhere where I did a bunch of calculations on, like, okay, I know I want my CNC to do this, and I basically back calculated. Yeah, I back calculated from if I wanted to cut aluminum, what motor would I need? You know, mm-hmm. like, but you have to go backwards through a whole bunch of stuff, uh, a whole bunch of you know losses and calculations, yeah, engineering. Woo! Oh
1: yeah. So the last topic for the RFO is the cheeseburger compass. So this This is is fantastic. (laughs) This is a GPS and Raspberry Pi combination with like IoT um, to let you know on a little tiny screen where the nearest cheeseburger fast food places (laughs) in like miles and direction. So you can always find that greasy cheeseburger that you would want to let into your heart and soul. And I think it had like
0: it it pulls from a list of like a few thousand cheeseburger places. So it's always like finding where you are in relation to cheeseburgers. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was
1: just a really cool project. And, and,
0: uh, I was like, man, that is is just straight to my heart. Yeah. So this is the, uh, I guess you can find some information on Patrick McDavid.com slash cheeseburger dash compass. We'll put that in the show notes, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, that's, that's freaking amazing. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe we need a taco finder. Oh, yeah. Or a brewery
1: finder. Ooh. Yeah, that's great. That's a good idea. So that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Parker Doman
0: And Stephen Craig.
1: <laughs> Go find a beer or a taco or a burger right now. <laughs> Take it easy. <laughs> Later, everyone. Thank you. Yes, you are a listener for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, topic, or cheeseburger compass that you want Stephen and I to discuss, tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog E-N-G, or email us at podcast at macfab.com. Also, we totally like talking about cheeseburger compasses at our Slack channel. So go click that and join up. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. Uh, we should be having a mailing list soon for the podcast as well. So uh, check out our blog and click the mailing list and sign up so you can get the latest MEP episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen as it helps the show stay visible, helps new listeners find
0: our very unique perspective on hardware engineering.